Hey, former American President Harry Truman was speaking of Washington, D.C. when he made the comment, if you really want a friend in this city, buy a dog. (laughs) You know, a royal court, as well as a capital city, are full of people jockeying for position, posturing for power. And under such conditions, meaningful relationships, meaningful friendships are difficult to develop. That's what made the bond and friendship between David and Jonathan so remarkable. Jonathan was the traditional heir to Israel's throne. He was Saul's blood. David was the spiritual heir to Israel's throne. He was God's choice. And yet somehow they overcame this potential rivalry and they remained pals. In tonight's chapters, we see the depth of a brotherly bond. And a love between friends. First Samuel chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. You remember Saul had become jealous of David. David was everything that Saul wasn't. And Saul had tried several times now to kill him. But here Jonathan goes to bat for David. And it's interesting to me that Jonathan and David did have much in common. You remember both men were jealous for God's honor and God's glory. They both had a daring faith. Neither of these men, Jonathan nor David, were afraid to step out and act on their faith and do something great for God. You remember Jonathan had attacked that Philistine garrison, just he and his his, uh, armor bearer. David, on the other hand, conquered a Philistine giant. And it's interesting how a common faith and a common love for God can create a brotherhood and a loyalty between two people. A loyalty stronger than blood, as we'll see in this relationship. And this is why Jonathan ratted on Saul. When he heard that Saul was trying to kill David, he ran back and told Dave. Jonathan said to David, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, Because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. You know, it took great courage for Jonathan to confront the king and to go to bat for his friend. I wonder how willing we are to stand up for our friends. When it might risk our reputation. When it might become an inconvenience to us. When it might upset our own well-being. Are we willing to risk our lives for our friends? In Jonathan's case, he was willing to risk even death for his friend. 
Reminds me of the man who was leaving his doctor's office one day. He said, well, you know, Doc, since we're such good friends, I won't insult you today and try to pay you for your services. But I do want you to know that I'm going to remember you in my last will and testament. The doctor paused for a minute and then he responded. He said, well, that's very kind of you, but can I see that prescription I gave you? I think I need to make a little change. (laughs) Neither of these two men were good friends. You know, the old saying still applies. True friends are like diamonds. They are real and rare. False friends are like leaves. They're scattered everywhere. Man, if you have a loyal, committed friend, as Jonathan was to David, you are a rich person. Well, verse 8 says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. And I'm sure the chorus that Saul hated to hear was once again playing on the streets of Jerusalem. The girls were singing it in the streets. The DJs were spinning it on the radio. It was getting a lot of airplay. You remember that chorus? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And what did that do to Saul? Oh, it infuriated him. It made him so jealous. David won Saul's victories, but they enraged Saul's jealousies. And now this distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. And we know from earlier experiences what's about to happen. David, duck! Not Donald Duck. David, duck! Get down, David! Duck, get down. You get it? Verse 10, then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. He threw it out of his hand, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. I tell you, Saul can't be trusted. So David fled and escaped that night. I'm sure David sort of took the attitude, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know, he promised not to let this happen again. And lo and behold, first time Saul has a bad day, boy, back to chunking spears. It's not a good thing to put a spear next to a jealous person. Not a good idea. Or a telephone. Or an email. Or the little chat thing they do, you know. Not a good idea. And it's interesting David fled and escaped that night, and for the next 20 years, David will be on the run, a fugitive from Saul. He won't return to the palace until he has been appointed king. Well, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. Goons are sent by Saul to set up ambush outside of David's house. A Hebrew squad of hitmen are stalking David. And Michael, David's wife, remember though, she was also Saul's daughter. Keep that in mind. Told him saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now Michael is in the same situation as her brother Jonathan. Is she going to side with her husband or will she side with her father? 
And she makes the right move. She protects an innocent man. You know, God expects his people to obey the governmental authorities. In this case, Michael should obey Saul. He's the king. Unless the king's command is in conflict with God's will. And that is obviously the case here. You know, what Peter and the apostles said to the Jewish Sanhedrin could also be applied to Michael. She could have said it to her father. Acts 5 verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. There comes a time when that's necessary. We're to obey the government as long as the government doesn't require us to do things that are immoral or disobedient to God. Now here's what's interesting. This hit squad stakes out the house until morning light. They're trying to assassinate David. But guess what David's doing? He's inside the house singing praises to God. Can you imagine? How do we know? Psalm 59 is prefaced when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Psalm 59 are the words that David wrote on this very night. And it's interesting to me how that psalm begins and ends. It starts out as follows. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. What an appropriate beginning. But then it also ends in verse 16. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. And you remember Saul's goons are planning to kill David when? In the morning at daybreak. You wonder if he shouted out the line, Your mercy in the morning! Loud enough for the hit squad to hear him. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Now it's one thing for us to sing that or read that psalm here in the sanctuary. It's another thing to write those words while people are outside plotting to kill you. Shows you David's courage and David's faith. Notice he responds to persecution with praise. Perhaps you're experiencing a little persecution these days. How do you deal with persecution? By praising the Lord. So Michael let David down through a window. And he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed. Put a cover of goat's hair for his head. And covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Now, why the guy being sick would stop people from wanting to kill him, I'm not really sure. (laughs) Maybe there's some kind of secret code among assassins, you know. You don't kill a sick guy. You give him some medicine, you doctor him up, then you kill him. Don't kill sick people. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, and notice this, notice how much Saul hates David. He says, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. I mean, notice the intensity of the king's hatred. Saul wants to deliver the death blow personally. He wants to strike David himself with his own hand. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head 
And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? She she claims that David had threatened her life in order to let him escape. Of course, she was lying to her father. I don't know why she did that unless maybe he was holding a spear. (laughs) Rather than stand up to her dead, though, Michael falsely accuses David to save her own skin. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, I love this, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Isn't that amazing? The delegation from Saul, these men who are inspired by anger and jealousy, are suddenly overtaken by God, who is inspired, who inspires them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Men that are full of hatred are suddenly overcome with the Spirit of God. And they begin to speak in these ecstatic, spontaneous messages from God. They're prophesying. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers. (laughs) And they prophesied likewise. The same thing happened to them. They too were overtaken by God. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. God keeps overtaking these messengers. Every time Saul sends out a guy to Naoth to do his dirty work, he gets saved. That's frustrating for Saul. (laughs) At some point, you need to ask yourself, hey, Who holds more sway and more power over men? King Saul or the Holy Spirit? Then Saul also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? Now Saul's coming himself. He sent out three dispatches of assassins. They all got saved. So now Saul shows up. Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And this time, God overtakes the king himself. For then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went out and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? My, oh my, oh my, we've got a nude prophet on our hands here. A preacher streaker right here. One thing's for sure, there's no doubt in my mind, Saul gave you the bare facts. He spoke the naked truth, no doubt about it. This was a real experience Saul had with God. And he was encountered and overtaken by God. God had overwhelmed his heart of anger and jealousy and had replaced that anger and jealousy with praise for God. And here Saul is. He's prophesying before the Lord. And I'm sure his nakedness was probably an expression of his humility and his remorse. I mean, he rent his garments. He tore his clothes. But it's interesting. 
and this is a point a lot of people miss. Humility and remorse don't necessarily translate into faith and into character. Sad but true. I've met people who come forward and they weep and weep and shed tears and cry. And I'll never do it again. And I'm sorry. And and, and great remorse. Great weeping. But then they get up and they walk out. And they do the very same things again. You see, just humility, just remorse doesn't translate into a changed life. Here's what people don't realize. You can waste an experience with God. You can waste it. He touches your heart. He creates a change. But if you don't cooperate, if you don't become an accomplice in that change, if you don't participate with the work that God wants to do in your life and the changes that He wants to make, and you get right back up and you forget it and fall right back into your old patterns, you can waste an experience with God. Sadly, this is what happens to Saul. This experience basically ends up as just a diversion so that David can escape again. Saul goes right back to his vicious ways. Well, in chapter 20, David catches up with his friend Jonathan. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, and he pours out his heart to his friend here, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? You know, David's confused. He's uncertain here. He's asking his friend Jonathan, Look, I've I've been faithful to your father. I've served Saul. Man, I've gone out and I've killed the Philistines. I've fought Saul's enemies. I've fought his battles for him. What is it that he has against me? What have I done to him? David has been so loyal to Saul, but he fears returning to the royal court. He's afraid if he could ever go back. And so Jonathan said to him, By no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Jonathan believes that if David does return to the royal court, he can protect his friend. He'll be privy to all of Saul's plans. So if Saul ever does try to strike David, Jonathan will know first. And he can warn David. He's wanting David to come back you know, to, the, to his previous post. But then David took an oath and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. David doesn't agree with Jonathan's conclusions. Here's what he figures. If Saul can kill, he can certainly lie. And he might just hide his intentions from Jonathan. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step, but a step, Between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. David knows Saul too well. He doesn't trust him. And David concocts a plan here to determine Saul's real intentions and and therefore his own future within Saul's court. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. It was a monthly festival that celebrated the 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 full moon. And I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, his hometown, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. 
If he thus says, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. And he's about to take an oath here. That when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow... Or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, and you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan blesses David, but he wants David to also bless him. And he says... And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knows that he's not to be king. He knows that God has chosen David. And he's asking David to bless him and his descendants. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And this is so marvelous. This is so wonderful. I mean, you've got to think of the dynamic between these two men. Jonathan had been raised. He had been brought up with the understanding that he would sit on the throne. He was the rightful heir. He was Saul's son. But now God has changed the plan. And it is amazing to me that Jonathan is so willing to cooperate. He's such a humble person. He has such a sensitive heart. He wants God's will more than his way. I wonder if we would feel the same in his situation. And now he's befriending David. He's helping David. And in verse 18, Jonathan gives David a signal to communicate... With him when he learns of Saul's intentions. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go find the arrows. And if I expressly say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. I mean, here's the sign. Arrows shot to David's side, to the young man's side. David will be safe. Arrows shot over the young man's head. David needs to run for his life. There's dangerous intent in Saul's heart. Verse 23. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, 
Indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. In other words, if you need to flee, remember me. You made a promise to me. I'm going to hold you to it. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. And now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And doesn't it seem strange to you that the king is off by himself? He's sort of up against a wall, leaning against the wall. I mean, you know he's off the wall, but here he's on the wall. And he's just sort of leaning against the wall rather than being where you'd think the king would be, in the midst of the table, you know, at the center of the activity. I think it's another indication of Saul's insecurities and his, actually his paranoia. <clears throat> Saul's not a very healthy person here. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean, surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our father has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now I have found favor in your eyes. Please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's the equivalent of a cuss word, guys. <laughs> Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? And you notice, he could have said anything about David. That Philistine killer. That chosen of God, that man after God's own heart. But notice he, he took probably the most uh, debased thing he could say of David. He, he tried to take sort of the low row. You know what is just the, the least flattering way he could refer to David? That son of Jesse. To your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. And Saul is trying to disguise his hatred of David as a concern for Jonathan's right to the throne. I want my boy to be the king, not David. That's really not his intentions. Now therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. And I guess you could say Jonathan finally gets the point. <laughs> you know, it's obvious here, Saul really loves his son Jonathan. You know, he's really concerned about his son having the throne, so much so that he tries to kill him. I mean, Saul's off his rocker. Jealousy is out of control. And make note of that. Jealousy often gets out of control. He claims to care about Jonathan's right to the throne. Then he tries to end his life at the point of a spear. Saul has become deranged. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. 
and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out with, after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And you know his words here are intended for David. He knows David is out there hiding in the thicket. The arrows are beyond you. He's sending a message to David. And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. Again, stressing the seriousness of the situation. David, run for your life. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad had gone... David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. This would be a tearful farewell. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Jonathan knows that the next king of Israel will be David, not him. And thus he makes David promise kindness toward his heirs. So David arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now reluctantly, here is where I need to bring up an unsavory point. In fact, I wish I didn't have to mention it and run the risk of tarnishing a beautiful story of friendship. But if I don't mention it to you, someone else will. And you need to be aware of the heresy. There are homosexuals in homosexual groups that try to justify their perversion by pointing to David and Jonathan and suggesting that theirs was a homosexual relationship. Please understand, this is ludicrous, ridiculous. Verse 41 does say, they kissed one another. But understand, Jonathan and David lived in an oriental culture where kisses were customary among men. A kiss on the cheek was a sign of friendship. It was the equivalent of our handshake, not some kind of romantic gesture. Please be aware of that. You see this today among Arab men. They'll come into the room and they'll kiss each other on the cheek, or Russian men. This is common in oriental culture and we can't apply it to western standards. That anyone would mistake the depth of friendship and the emotion shared between David and Jonathan. If anyone would ever imagine that as some kind of perverted attachment, to me it's an indictment against the shallowness of most male friendships today. You know, men tend to act macho. Sometimes we guys assume that repressing, not expressing emotion is a real sign of manhood. A couple of guys getting teary-eyed. Oh man, that must be weird. We got the John Wayne persona. You know, I disagree with that notion though. Men are human. Men feel as well as think and act. 
Male emotion does come out at times. It comes out on the battlefield when the brother's wounded. Men get emotional in those circumstances. It comes out on the football field in the midst of celebration. My, oh my, those guys are slapping each other in all kinds of places and jumping on top of each other and all kinds of things. That's appropriate male, you know, expression. I think men can be more expressive at other times as well. I don't think we have to repress our emotions like we do. I think we can be expressive. Don't be confused here. David and Jonathan had a holy, healthy, brotherly, manly love for each other. Their model of friendship here is the depth that we men should strive for in our relationships. Chapter 21. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Evidently after the Philistines' assault on the tabernacle in Shiloh back in the days of Eli, whatever was left of the tabernacle was moved to the city of Nob. The priesthood now was stationed in Nob. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? Evidently there were just a few men with David. But compared to the company that most celebrities traveled with, David was alone. You know, a superstar like David would ride into town with his posse, you know. The limo would pull up and the whole gang would get out, you know, and they'd all be coming up. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And obviously he's lying here. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. I sent them on ahead. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves and bread in my hand or whatever can be found. David and the few men that were with him were on the run. It had been a while since they'd eaten. They needed some food. They're getting hungry. In fact, they're famished. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And the bread he's referencing here is the sacred showbread. You remember that when we studied it from Leviticus. They were the 12 loaves that were placed in the tabernacle that were only eaten by the priest. The showbread spoke of fellowship with God. This is what made them so holy and sacred. The word showbread literally means bread of faces. And it conjures up the idea of eating with God across the table, face to face with Him. F.B. Meyer refers to the showbread as the presence bread. Only the priest ate this bread. But Ahimelech is about to make an exception. Now, then David answered the priest and said, and of course, what Ahimelech, he's about to make an exception, but notice what he had said earlier. Then David answered the priest. He asked if if the women had been kept from him. You see that? Everybody see that? He asked if any women had been kept from him. And you ask, why in the world did, is he concerned about that? Well, remember again, we learned from Leviticus that a bodily omission made a man ceremonially unclean. And thus this priest, he's about to violate a basic Jewish tradition by letting David eat the showbread, but at least David needs to have some kind of modicum of protocol and propriety, at least Tell me you hadn't been with any women lately. And David answers the priest and he says, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. 
And the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common, even though it was sacrificed in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread. For there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. The sacred showbread was always fresh. The fact David says this is common bread means that it had been taken off of the altar. New bread had been put in its place. And David wants to eat this showbread. Now, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uses David's example right here in our text, 1 Samuel 21, to refute the legalistic Pharisees. They're accusing Jesus of violating the law by allowing his disciples to pluck grain and eat the grain on the Sabbath day. And Jesus answers them in Matthew chapter 12. Have you not read? And he's referring to our text right here in 1 Samuel 21. What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And in the same passage, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here Jesus is making an incredible point. It was never God's intention to put religious ritual above human need. The law was given to help mankind, not hurt him. And when the letter of the law contradicts the intent of the law, then the spirit of the law takes precedent. Here you've got hungry men. Here you've got men that are famished. Here you've got God's chosen one who's to be king of Israel on the run from an angry man. He needs food. Are we going to let some kind of religious ritual stop David from eating this needed bread and fortifying his body for the challenges ahead? Of course not. It's obviously God's will to feed a hungry person versus to support some kind of religious ritual. Feeding a hungry man is always more holy than lighting a candle or burning incense or paying a tithe. Feeding hungry people, meeting human needs is is God's heart. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. Take note of this. We're going to run into this guy later. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. It turns out Doeg will act as a spy for King Saul. He's going to rat out David later. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, oh, there is none like it. Give it to me. And you wonder if he didn't pick it up and sort of roll the grip around in his hand and take a couple of swings again, you know, and... And remember how he chopped off Goliath's head with it and kind of relived that moment all over again where he defended God's glory and defeated the giant. Boy, oh boy, he had that sword back in his hand. You know, the priest was probably holding on to it as a keepsake. 
Maybe he planned to put it up for sale at the big Jerusalem memorabilia auction. But I think here's the point. Please, don't turn weapons into keepsakes. You know, the only keepsakes you and I need to be concerned about are heavenly treasures. Those are the only keepsakes we need to be holding on to. All that God gives us on earth needs to be used. Needs to be used for God's glory and for others' benefit. Verse 10. Well, then David arose and he fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And it was probably not a great idea to wear Goliath's sword down Main Street in Goliath's hometown. Gath was where Goliath was from. That's what David does. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now why David flees into the land of the Philistines, his mortal enemies, we're not sure. Especially to Goliath's hometown. Maybe David had thought that the Philistines had forgotten him. David might have figured that enemy territory would be the only place that Saul wouldn't be willing to chase him. He might have thought that would be the only place he would be safe from Saul's fury would be behind Philistine borders. Verse 12, Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them, feigned madness in their hearts, Could have acted like Saul. Scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down his beard. David goes animalistic. He starts acting like a madman. He starts foaming at the mouth. I thought about bringing a Diet Coke and a Memento. Do you know about this? That if you drop a Memento, that little candy, into a Diet Coke, I mean, it explodes. It'll shoot up from the bottle probably four or five feet. I'm just thinking David probably swallowed some Diet Coke and stuck a memento in his mouth. You know, and he was foaming at the mouth and foam was rolling down his face and he starts scratching at the doors, acting real animalistic and acting like a madman, a crazy man. You figure that's what happened? Whatever he did, it worked. For then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? i got enough crazy people in Gath. Get rid of this guy. Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Get him out of my sight. And David's scheme succeeds. And it's interesting. There are two Psalms. Read them tonight when you go home. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 that are written in the aftermath of this episode. Both of them are ascribed to this period of time when David feigned madness in Gath. And both, interestingly enough, extol God's greatness and His willingness to deliver us in times of trouble. In fact, listen to David as he reflects back on this experience. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 19, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart 
and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And now you know what he was talking about. Chapter 22, David attracts a crowd. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers in all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Boy, he attracted some riffraff. And so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now the cave of Adullam was a stronghold in the valley of Elah. Remember what happened in the valley of Elah? That was the site where David slew Goliath. David goes down there. He finds this cave. And there he is joined by various people, 400 men. This becomes David's camp. This is one of his hideouts in Israel. And what a motley crew he attracts. He's joined by this bunch of misfits. The distressed, the debtors, the discontented. Sounds like Calvary Chapel. (laughs) This is also what will happen later to a son of David named Jesus, the Messiah. When Jesus comes to earth, he reaches out in love and he accepts the down and out. And he attracts the misfits, you and me. Jesus was followed by the outcasts and the disenfranchised of society. And Jesus brings rest to the distressed. He forgives the debtor and makes him heir to his riches. And he gives peace and deep down satisfaction to the discontented. You and I are among Jesus' 400 men. We've joined Jesus' posse. We've become Jesus' mighty men and women. Jesus has given us a fresh start. In a new identity. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Moab, of course, was east of the Dead Sea. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. He's seeking refuge for his family. You know, David was worried that Saul might try to harm his family to get to him. Saul would have been fully capable of kidnapping and extortion. And David hopes that Moab will provide his family some political asylum. He hopes the the Moabites will provide a safe house for David's mother and father. You recall David had some Moabite blood. His great-grandmother was a Moabitess. You remember her name? Ruth. You're good. And so he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. In other words, David, you need to go further south. You need to get out of Dodge here. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Verse 6. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants. Man, he always had his spear in his hand. And all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? And I imagine Saul's worried about some of his men defecting and going over to David. 
He's saying, I'm the king, not David. I'm the one who can reward you. I'm the one who can promote you. Stay and fight with me. All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals me. And this is how paranoid he is. He thinks everybody's turned against him. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is no one of you who is sorry for me. Oh, poor, beautiful soul. Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Saul is sulking again. He's having a big pity party here. He feels Jonathan has betrayed him. Everyone has sided against him and sided for his son and David. And then answered Doeg, the Edomite. You remember Doeg? Where was he? He was at the tabernacle back in Nob. Remember? He saw that whole thing went on between Ahimelech and David. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. He rats out Ahimelech. And so the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? And so Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? This doesn't make sense. I mean, David came to me, said he was on a mission for you. He served you faithfully. Why are you angry at him? He continues, verse 15. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. And again, Saul issues one of these rash orders. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. They feared God far more than they feared Saul. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. And this dog, Doeg, was the only man in the crowd that day evil enough to do the dirty deed. And so he takes a sword and he does Saul's dirty work. And so Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck the priests and he killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. It was the smock. The ephod was the smock worn by the priests. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Doeg carries out Saul's bloodthirsty wishes. Verse 20, Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. And can you imagine him coming up to David and weeping and crying? And David, you'll just never, you can't believe what he did. And spilling out the beans, you know, and telling him the story. 
And so David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. You know, I had a feeling about that guy. I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. And I want you to notice this. Notice David's tender, humble, repentant heart. He could have, perhaps he should have, blamed Saul's rage. Blamed Doeg's diabolical self-seeking for this disaster. Instead, notice, David holds himself responsible. If David hadn't pretended to be on a royal mission... Of course, if Ahimelech had known the truth, he probably would have been even more inclined to help David. But David's first impulse here is to search his own heart rather than blame someone else to search his own heart. And here is the mark of a true leader. Here is why God selected David to be king. When calamity struck, rather than to blame other people, he searched his own heart. That's a mark of a true leader. That's a man after God's own heart. I'm not going to blame somebody else. I'm going to search my own heart. What role did I play in this? How was I party to this problem? I may have played just a little part. But let me take responsibility for myself first. Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, is the sole survivor, his only heir. And David will pay his debt to the parish priest Ahimelech by ensuring the safety of his son, Abiathar. And in the last line of chapter 22, David promises Abiathar, Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. And let me close tonight with some important typology. There's a picture here you need to see. David is king, but he's yet to take the throne. He's God's anointed, but another man sits on the throne named Saul. In the meantime, David is gathering up society's rejects. He and his followers are the objects of persecution. Saul, this usurper, sits on the throne and he is venting his rage at David and his merry men. And understand, it's all a picture of our King Jesus. For though Jesus is the anointed one, though Jesus has been chosen by God to be the king of this earth, Right now, Saul still sits on the throne. The devil is the usurper. And what is the devil doing in these last days? He's persecuting Jesus and his followers. And while Jesus gathers up all of us distressed and discontented and indebted, Saul, Satan, is angry at what Jesus is doing in the world today. How he's saving lives, how he's changing hearts. But one day... Jesus will take the throne. He will rule over this earth. Saul and Satan will be disposed. They'll be judged and the followers of Jesus will reign and rule with him. What a day that will be. And what a wonderful picture.